0: to another episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a debate coach and humanities instructor at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. And today I want to bring you an episode discussing the uh, frequently used Lincoln-Douglas value rule of law. In this episode, I want to go over what the rule of law is, what some alternatives to the rule of law are, how we got to the very idea of rule of law, and then how is it useful for Lincoln-Douglas debate. Uh, This is a solo episode. I I don't have my normal co-host, Ethan Delves, with me today, Uh, so I'm going to be doing this. This will be a relatively quick episode, but hopefully it's helpful. Uh, I've judged Lincoln-Douglas debate for three years now, and I've seen several cases that make use of rule of law for uh, their value in uh, LD. And of course, if you've been listening to our show or if you've been debating long, you know that there's a profound difference between the debates that are based on a proposition of policy versus those that are run on a proposition of value. We here at What's the Res follow a more traditional school of thought when it comes to LD, and we think that the value does in fact matter. So when you're faced with a resolution Resolution for LD, one of the biggest questions that you need to consider is what value will give me access to certain different arguments? Because the way you set up your arguments in LD is that they're all arranged to fulfill the value that you've selected. Well, one of the most frequently used values for any kind of resolution dealing with politics or political life or some kind of common good in terms of politics or the economy is rule of law. So uh, rule of law is one of those phrases that's really easy to use, but not a lot of people think carefully about what exactly it means. So I want to go over first and foremost, what exactly we're talking about when we say rule of law. So rule of law as a value is naming the quality that we as a society, particularly a Western society, as I'll get to in a little bit, uh, believe that fundamentally laws are not simply decided by fiat. They're not decided by force. They're not decided ultimately even by the will of the people necessarily, but rather that the rule of law is a principle that our society is going to be governed by right authority. That authority might be placed in one body or another. In a democratic republic like the United States, it's ultimately vested in the people, but we delegate that to representatives who then decide what the laws are going to be. And this principle of rule of law becomes critical because eventually every adult runs into some law that is irritating. And 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 that's even on the level of just personal life, not on the level of an inherently unjust law. For me, it happened when I was 16 and I started driving and I realized that the state of Virginia told me I had to wear a seatbelt. I thought that was an infringement on my personal rights as a human being. It was irritating to wear a seatbelt. Why on earth should I bother wearing a seatbelt? I was a good driver. I was not going to hit anyone. Well, of course, as hopefully others listening will will understand, uh, I was an overconfident 16-year-old. I had several accidents before I became a better driver. But I learned eventually that I had to wear my seatbelt. Now, I never consented to that law. I never gave anyone permission to put a rule over me. Instead, this principle of rule of law comes in, uh, was in play. Because I live in this society, the society has decided that I must follow these laws, and if I'm going to gain the benefits of society, I have to obey the laws that are on top of me. Now the trick here with this idea of rule of law is that rule of law means that ultimately everyone must obey the law. Uh, and This becomes a, a vital principle for a flourishing democratic form of government. And ultimately that's that's where a lot of modernity has moved, such that it doesn't matter if you're wealthy or if you're poor. In theory, at least, the law applies equally. And that really and, and rule of law is it it often encompasses justice, or justice is encompassed by rule of law, where we might say rule of law is the way that justice is accomplished, but ultimately rule of law doesn't matter in terms of justice. It's not as if rule of law depends on its ability to provide justice instead, rule of law is seen to be the best possible setup because the alternatives are terrible. Now, this is where this becomes a pretty helpful Lincoln Douglas paradigm on uh, so it's uh, I'm recording this in August of 2019 and I've got several students that are doing LD for the first time so they're working through the LD novice resolution. Civil disobedience in a democracy is morally justified. Well, a great value for NEG would be to say, look, rule of law is our highest value because without rule of law, we are left to individual subjectivity to decide what laws we're going to obey. And when, we, when we're in that position, we actually are in a position of anarchy. And when we have anarchy, we have chaos. And ultimately, uh, we're going to have a string of events that mean we have societal collapse, at the point where we have anarchy, we don't have a uniform system of trade anymore. We don't have a way to provide foods and services from city to countryside and so on. In anarchy, ultimately, the, the masses lose out. There may be a few people who establish Mad Max-style street gangs in an anarchic state, but rather... It it is better, the argument goes, for us to suffer a single or several unjust laws so that we uphold the principle of rule of law rather than fall back on one of the alternatives. Now, one other thing I do want to mention under this whole section looking at what exactly rule of law is involves a general assumption. When we have a society governed by rule of law where the majority of people operate under the assumption that whatever the law says is really what I'm going to do, What that leads to is an assumption of honesty. And of course, that's eventually proven false. Uh, No matter how many well-intentioned people we have, eventually we have people who make poor choices and eventually steal and lie and deceive. But rule of law also carries with it an assumption that people will eventually be punished for unjust actions. So even if I don't see it, I functionally live as if I can trust my neighbors, and I live as though I believe the police will actually enforce the law. Now, and this is one of those ideas that's kind of difficult to wrap our minds around, uh, because for, for those who live, have, have had a certain kind of life, this is so baked into the very air we breathe. We assume that rule of law is correct and that when we call the police to say, hey, someone broke into my house, that the police officer is not going to respond with, so what kind of bribe can you offer me today? Instead, we assume that the police officer is also going to operate under law and he's going to operate as someone with integrity and he's going to help me solve this problem and figure out who took my stuff and how can I get it back. When we have a society governed by rule of law it assumes that really virtues are real and everyone is operating in assumption with a common set of virtues now that that really is what r- rule of law is it's the assumption that when we figure out what these laws are we're all going to operate by them and even if i personally don't like it I'm going to choose to obey the law because the principle of living under law is better than the alternative of living in a state of social anarchy or chaos. So, well, let's talk about some of those alternatives uh, rather quickly. Uh, I, I, I thought of two, at least, where the first is, I've already mentioned, is anarchy. Well, that anarchy word comes from the Greek, and I know Ethan loves when I do etymology lessons on here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one very briefly. This is called the alpha primitive. When you have the letter A, which is the Greek letter alpha, at the beginning of a word, in the Greek language it functions as a negation of that word. In this case, we have a very Greek original word because the word archos in Greece refers to rule. So when you have archos or anarchy in English, what we're dealing with is the absence of rule, the lack of rule. And uh, there's a one of my favorite movies is the Lion King, and there's there's a great moment in there that reflects this, where Scar has just revealed to the hyenas that his plan is to kill the king, and the hyenas look at each other and they say they start they begin singing No king, no king, fa la 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 la, and Scar looks at them he says Idiots, there will be a king, I will be king. And that really is the reality of what happens in a state of anarchy. Someone rises to the top. Someone has the biggest stick, and he enforces his will on society. So if instead of anarchy, well, really, an anarchy never lasts very long. Anarchy leads eventually to a dictatorship of some sort. But there's often a really horrific period in between where there's a huge scramble for power. Now, we've seen this not just in movies like The Lion King, but more recently in, uh, in, in modern history. Uh, this, this happened in, uh, in Libya when uh, President Obama's re- uh, government took out the regime of uh, Mu- uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Now, Gaddafi, of course, was a dictator, and he had violated human rights had committed many uh, g- almost genocidal war crimes against different tribes in, in Libya. But at the same time, he was a source of order. He did enforce a certain level of rule of law. And suddenly, when that rule of law was removed, what you saw was a bunch of little chieftains who were suddenly at war with each other to try to become the big chief. And in the midst of that, the ordinary people were caught in the crosshairs. Rape, pillage, plunder, uh, devastation, horrible actions took place. It created, taking out the dictator, created a new humanitarian crisis in uh, in uh, Libya. Well... So anarchy, I think, is one alternative to rule of law. You could certainly have no rule for a time. But it always leads then to that second alternative where you really have dictatorship which instead of rule of law is really rule of force or rule by force the dictator maintains his power through some kind of force whether that's through collusion with the military uh, or whether that's through some sort of ideological force Uh, the regime of the un family in north korea is a mix of military force ideological force and religious force because of course the uns are the head of their own state cult religion So what you get then is that there are alternatives to rule of law, but the alternatives are so bad that the argument, I think, makes a lot of sense. We are better off submitting to an unjust law on the principle of rule, because the principle of rule of law is better for us all. Now... Which brings us to a different part of this argument: that really, even if you have an unjust rule, so let's take the uh, the novice uh, case for example, and say that uh, we have we're we're back a few decades ago, and the Jim Crow laws are still there. Well, the negative case has solid ground to come back and say, okay, we recognize that the Jim Crow laws are that even though they say they're creating separate but equal, they're inherently unequal, and they're unfair, and they're dehumanizing but and that's the critical part for the negative on that case but the unjust rule of, or this unjust rule of law is still better than rejecting the principle of a common law for a people that we're all ruled by the same law so at the point where people can say that law is just and that other law over there that one's unjust and i can choose i can pick and choose which one's to obey Well, that's really the collapse of rule of law and the beginnings of anarchy and the beginning of a chain of events that would lead to the collapse of the United States of America. That at least is the argument. Now, it takes a lot of work to be able to substantiate the warrants on on that. It's really easy to set up a slippery slope chain of impacts. It's really hard to make that argument in a way that is persuasive to a judge. Now, let me shift them for a moment and uh, it, uh, just indulge me for, for a brief moment. I don't often go historical on this show, but I am originally a history major. My first uh, kind of class that I love teaching was a history class. So I want to spend a moment on a bit of intellectual history and looking at the development of this idea of rule of law. Because there are certainly parts of the Eastern world that have strong law codes but the uh the rule the concept of rule of law and the concept of a a universal law code for all people everywhere, it really is a concept that belongs to the Western world. It starts in ancient Greece, and it is best born out in Europe and America today. So go go back with me 23, 2400 years ago to uh, the, the father of political science, his name is Aristotle. He wrote the first book on politics, and he also studied a series of cities and their constitutions. The two studies that we have of his, of their the constitutions, are the city of Sparta and the city of Athens. Where in all of those studies, Aristotle was really trying to figure out how exactly does politics work? How do we organize ourselves together such that people will live virtuously and will actually choose better lives than the alternatives? Well... Aristotle did that, but he did that in a very academic, scholarly way. He kind of like set down in writing some of the principles that he saw that he thought worked, and it didn't really go terribly far, except in the fact that he influenced Alexander the Great, who ended up conquering most of the known world at the time. And everywhere Alexander went, he conquered a city and he left behind one of his military officers who established a Macedonian code of law. So suddenly we have a similar law code, no longer just being in Macedonia or just being in Greece. Now it's uh, everywhere Alexander went. There's some in Israel, there's some in Egypt, there's some in India. And there's it's now suddenly we've got this idea like, wait a minute, what if everyone everywhere followed the same laws? What if we could then operate under a universal law code, and knowing that everywhere these actions are permitted and these actions are forbidden, and everywhere the punishments fit the crime to a certain extent. Well, Aristotle took that to a certain degree, but really the people who were the best at at law, I think, were the Romans. Uh, The the Romans excelled at law, and there's there's really two places I want to just kind of jump into the stream of Roman history to point to. Uh, The first of those is the development of the Twelve Tables. This was a critical moment in the Roman Republic, where the people were rioting and the patricians were trying to pacify them. So the patricians did something. They gave a lot of rights to the plebeians, the vast masses of people. But what they did that was different was that they set all of those down in writing in a big set of tablets in the heart of rome right outside of the forum these 12 tables became the beginnings of the codification of roman law such that for jet for all the following generations they were able to point back to those tables to say that's the law the law was no longer just whatever the equestrians or the, the, the horse-riding soldiers that later become known as knights uh, or the, or the infantry or the generals or even the Caesars said it was. It wasn't about the person who said it. Rather, it was about, oh, it's written there on the tablet. That is the law. We are all ruled by that law. Now that law, that, that began a tradition, and it really grew as the Roman Empire grew and spread across the Mediterranean, across northern Africa, uh, uh, into northern Europe, that or uh, at least uh, halfway up through Britain up to Hadrian's Wall. That law spread this idea and this conviction that even though you have the Gauls, uh, the, the Britons, or the Welsh we would call them today, uh, and, the, and the Romans, and, and, or whether you have the, uh, the Phrygians or the, uh, the, the Palestinians, or not Palestinians today, but whether, um, whether you have all these different people groups, they should all be governed by the same law. They should all be treated in the same way. Well, if you jump forward in time to Emperor Justinian, we're now in the, uh, I believe it's the 400s to 500s AD. Justinian is emperor on the new version of Rome. It's called Byzantium or Constantinople. Today, it's the city of Istanbul in Turkey. But Justinian is there in Constantinople, and his big contribution is to do a massive survey of all the laws throughout the Roman Empire of his day. Bring them all together and codify them and this document became known as justinian's code and from the 500s a.d onward it was the summation of the law and now what happens next is really the collapse of this unified roman world this is what historians always get in a tizzy when someone uses the phrase dark ages. It's not really a dark age. There was still plenty of light and happiness and joy. Uh, but what you do have is in the 500s, from between the 500s to roughly the, 1200, or roughly the 1,000s, uh, you have this string, you have 500 years of continual barbarian invasions, followed by Viking invasions, followed by the rise of Islam and the destruction of what had been there before. You have all this chaotic period. Where what happens in the midst of this chaotic period is the rise of individual, unique kingdoms, and suddenly we have a contrast. In every kingdom, the law is whatever the king says it is, and sometimes it was sometimes there were good laws, but typically good kings have terrible sons, so the good laws only lasted a single generation. And again, speaking very generally, very broadly. What you can see throughout the Western tradition is this desire for a law code that supersedes the single person who figures out how to write a good law, a law that helps people live well together, a law that doesn't tax the people unnecessarily, but also makes sure that the soldiers have enough money to fight off the invading barbarian hordes, like in the 1200s when the Mongols came west, or in the 800s when the Vikings came assailing, and all these things. Uh, you need laws that enable make sure that the people coining money don't cheat you, or that the person selling you goods at the market also doesn't cheat you, or that as you travel to and fro throughout England or France or, or any of the Germanys or any of the Italian states, that you can leave your home, you can go to a place of business, and you can come back without fear of being marauded or robbed or raped or whatever the case may be. So this idea of a common law code really is also, it, it gets wrapped up in the development of the modern nation state. So I want to jump back into the uh, into the story in, uh, in the year 1648, where we have a critical piece of the development of a modern legal structure and the modern idea of rule of law. In 1648, we're at the tail end of an event called the Thirty Years' War, where it's one contender for the First World War because it has a lot of European nations at each other's throats, and this this war is at the heart of, of this uh, the heart of Western Europe, where really throughout France and Germany for thirty years armies have been ravaging the countryside and killing each other, ostensibly for religious reasons. In reality, the religious motivations of the Thirty Years' War were really insignificant after the first five years or so of this struggle, uh, but. At the end, in 1648, the heads of state of Europe all gathered in a place called Westphalia. And to summarize a very complicated series of movements, they swore a treaty, signed a treaty, uh, vowing that from here on out, two things. First, diplomacy is always an option rather than marching armies together. Diplomacy began has a very strong uh, peace that starts that comes out of Westphalia, but secondly, they were going to be governed by secular laws rather than tying church and state together and then going to war with each other over religion. Now, the peace of Westphalia is a critical piece of the development of the modern nation state because the modern nation state is growing out of this developing secularity. Uh, contemporary philosopher Charles Taylor does a lot with this in his book, A Secular Age. Uh, he sees Westphalia as pretty significant. Now, what then? Our next. I want to just mention two other developments. That's going to pretty much bring us to the modern day, and we'll wrap this episode up. When you have the uh, seven, when you have the events in the in the British colonies beginning in 1776, that culminates in the creation of a new United States in 1781, and then the states try one constitutional experiment, it fails, so they try another, and it it succeeds. By 1789, in the United States, you have this new American constitutional government. Where here we have something that really is fantastic, where we have people who have overthrown their colonial overlords, and then they have decided that they actually are going to embrace a universal rule of law. And they're going to establish their government in the same system that has its checks and balances, it's inefficient in a lot of intentional ways, but it's never perfect but it is better to rule ourselves this way than in any other way and they do that the founders elevated the constitution to such a high degree because they had such a fervent conviction that the law must be higher than a single man or even a single generation of men so they wrote the constitution in that way they they made it's above the state governments it's higher than those it's also able to be changed. They recognized it was a human document. It's imperfect, so there's routes to change it, but it's hard to change the Constitution. It takes an enormous amount of agreement across a huge number of people or huge number of states to get a constitutional amendment passed. None of that was accidental. The founders wrote the Constitution, and they built the government they did because they had such a conviction that no individual person could be the one in charge of law. Instead, law has to reflect a a pretty substantial agreement across people that this law is actually the way we should go. This is how we should live. doesn't mean that those laws are ever perfect. There's always room for change and for improvement because these laws are made by people. But the fundamental conviction of the American experiment is that we, the people, are actually able to govern ourselves under rule of law. And to, to go on an additional tangent for just a moment, uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, it, I think it's vital that we have continual discussion across party lines in this country, because uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of the current president. I really did not like President Obama's policies that he was all about. Um, but it is vital that we respect President Trump and we respect President Obama as representatives of the application of rule of law in this country. And because of that, it's much more about the office and it's much more about the dignity of the office than it ever is about the individual person who is fulfilling that office. So for whatever pieces of the res publica, uh, the the things of the people, uh, remain in our democratic republic, I think it's vital that we be able to really respect the rule of law uh, in our midst as it's applied. Which really brings us then to uh, the aftermath of World War II. Now, World War II grows in a European context. Uh, the seeds were sown by the, uh, the Allied victory of World War I. But World War II is really developing in such a way that it, uh, it, it really it was the rise of fascist powers. It was a rejection of rule of law in this older sense. I'd rather, you have the law concentrated in uh, Franco in Spain, in Hitler in Germany, and in Mussolini in Italy. Well, the aftermath of World War II is really a conquer- It's a it's a victory for rule of law. You have the parliamentary constitutionalism led by Winston Churchill in England, and you have the American constitutional rule of law re- led by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and masterminded by the American military. Now, but what you get in the, after that is really a an international conviction amongst Western powers uh, that they are opposed to arbitrary laws. Uh, And this is part of the establishment of NATO as an official organization of the West. The North Atlantic Trade Institution is really an alliance of the West to define themselves in a certain way and to uphold their convictions about the rule of law. It's also part of the United Nations and the attempt to really begin writing an international law, an international way of extending this principle of rule of law throughout the world. So... For all that to say, I I hope my my, uh, passion is not uh, obscuring clarity in this episode, but rule of law is a vitally important thing, Uh, and it is necessary for us to live together as people that even when we disagree about certain laws, even if I think I should be able to drive 90 miles an hour in a neighborhood or a school zone, realistically, I should submit to that law, and if I'm caught, I should not be upset about paying the penalty for my disobedience because fundamentally, I should recognize that this is better than the alternatives. And so that if I'm going to follow the affirmative burden on the the novice LD resolution, and I'm going to protest the law, it's vital that I do so without rejecting the principle of law itself. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. did so brilliantly in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He lays out the logic and explains that his protest is not rejecting the principle of rule of law. Instead, he's protesting an unjust law, which is actually in, within the bounds of the rule of law to fix. So his protest is intended to remind people, hey, we haven't got this one perfectly yet. Let's fix this. Rather than embracing an anarchist position and trying to overthrow law itself and condemn us all to a uh, frigid wasteland, like a, like a dystopian movie. Well, uh, that's that's probably long enough for this episode on rule of law thank you for sticking with me on this episode of what's the res uh, I hope you've enjoyed uh, do write in and let us know how your use of this episode went if you try this out and around uh, we'd love to hear from you you can get in touch with us uh, our email address is what's the res at gmail.com you can also find us on Twitter Instagram and Reddit with the handle at what's the res underscore we're also on Facebook you can find us at facebook.com slash res. You can also see all of our episodes at our website, www.whatstherez.com. And just in case you uh, just can't get enough of debate, we've got uh, a whole stream of premium episodes where we record real people debating real topics. And uh, these are educated non-experts debating the major issues of the day. And you can find those episodes at whatstherez.podbean.com premium. Thank you for joining me on this episode of What's the Res? And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.